Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh, can't wait to talk about that with you this morning. But before we go there, um, how many of you were uh, woken up by the thunder last night, the lightning? Amazing, right? Amazing. Now, what I'd like you to do is just turn to the front of your bulletin. And I just want you to notice that we saw it coming. Just to tell you, um, pretty amazing, don't you think? I mean, like, we're good. We're, we're real good. I mean, I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, am I back in Denver or am I in San Diego? But um, if you got a little bit less sleep than normal last night, I am with you and will do my best to keep you awake for the next few minutes here, all right? Well, the date was November 27th, 2009, when Tiger Woods, who was the number one golfer in the world at the time, was in a sort of enigmatic car accident. His SUV had a fire hydrant and then a tree, and then his then-wife, Ellen, took a nine-iron to his window and to the car, and Tiger Woods in one night went from being on top of the world and almost untouchable to being absolutely disgraced publicly. It came out that he had had a number of different affairs, that his wife was um, um, attacking his car because she was so frustrated and so upset. And Tiger Woods went from being this very revered person in our culture and society. I mean, he was an amazing golfer to um, being the front page of the New York Post for 20 days in a row. He set a new record to being the most Googled term uh, on the internet for that season. In fact, in fact, the phrase um, Tiger Woods car and wife was Googled 28.7 million times in that short little time period. And what that event drew out for us is that we love, we love, love, love seeing our heroes succeed. But then we also love seeing them fall. I mean, his popularity, his notoriety continued to increase as people looked on to see his life starting to crumble. It's interesting because psychologists have been studying this phenomenon. It's not just true of Tiger Woods. It's true of many of our heroes. We love seeing them succeed, but we also secretly love to see when they fall. And they've tried to figure out why that is. And one of the things that they've identified is that when our heroes fall, it reminds us that they're a little bit more like us than they once looked like teeing off, right? They're a little bit more like us. But then, in a plot twist that M. Night Shyamalan would even be proud of, we also love seeing our heroes succeed once again, don't we? We love that comeback story, which is why the sports world took notice when in 2019, Tiger Woods won his first major in almost 11 years. The world lost its collective mind. I mean, we love that story, don't we? The hero that falls and then makes a comeback. It's the reason that the phoenix rising from the ashes has been a transcendent myth in almost every culture throughout all time. We love that story, don't we? 
And that's what Psalm 126 is about. It's a song about a comeback. It's a song about restoration. It's a song of somebody who was sort of down and out, getting back to where they once were. And we have songs like that in our culture in our day too, don't we? One of my favorite bands, or my favorite band is Need to Breathe. And they wrote a song a number of years ago called Rise Again. And I want you to listen to the chorus of this song because I think it captures what the psalmist is writing about in Psalm 126. Oh, I know I'm on the rise again. Some sights on where I'm going and my goodbyes are where I've been. All right, I was looking to see if anyone was singing along. No Need to Breathe fans out there? I mean, come on, people! So good, so good. I know I'm gonna rise again. Farewell to brokenness. Hello to a new future. Rise again. I think we all love that storyline. It may be the reason that you love, just like our family does, walking down grand uh, when they're having cruising grand. And looking at these cars that have been restored back to their original glory. We love seeing things that are brought back to life. Now here's my question. Why? Why, why do we love that storyline? Is there just some sort of like euphoric hit that we get when we hear a story of a comeback? Or is there something deeper? I'd suggest to you that there's something far deeper, something that's transcendent about the human story and about the human longing, something that's even universal and even theological in nature. See, I'm convinced that we want to believe, every single one of us in this room today, want to believe that our story isn't over. We want to believe that God is able to restore human hearts, not just Chevy Camaros, right? We want to believe that the marriage that's on the rocks can be healed. We want to believe that the depression that seems to just keep growing worse can make a turnaround. We want to believe that the sin pattern that we've been stuck in for so long doesn't have to be our future. We want to believe that our failures aren't final. And so, when we hear a song like, rise again. When we see a story of somebody making a comeback, it echoes in our soul because we say in some way, some shape, some form, God, let that be my story too. Anybody want to say amen? amen? That's what Psalm 126 is about. Would you open there in your Bible with me? If you don't have one with you, you can follow along in the Bible that's in the seat back near you. Psalm 126 is another one of these Psalms of Ascent. Remember, these Psalms of Ascent are a collection of Psalms that the Hebrew people would sing as they were walking and sojourning up to Jerusalem to celebrate the religious feasts. And listen to this song and imagine people singing it along the dusty roads leading to that great city. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done 
great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, most scholars agree that this psalm was probably written later on in the Israelites' narrative after they had returned from exile. So they'd been in exile for a number of decades, and when God brought them back, they wrote this song. It's the reason that the passage starts off in the past tense. Do you notice that? In fact, I would invite you to circle that word in your Bible, restored, and even underline the fact that it's past tense. That word restored is the Hebrew word shub, and it quite literally means to turn back or to bring back. I went to my bag this morning to get my iPad and was all ready to teach and really excited and my iPad wasn't in my bag. And I went, oh man, I don't remember where I put it, but luckily I have find my iPad. And so I got onto my phone and I tried to figure out where is it? And my thought was, is it at church somewhere or is it at home somewhere? And it turns out it's in Los Angeles somewhere. <laughs> that... Somewhere along the way over the last few days, somebody stole my iPad and it is now in Los Angeles and I hope they're using it to preach the gospel because there's a lot of sermons on there. Just pick one, preach them, right? But I would love for my iPad to be shooed, for it to be brought back, for it to be restored to me. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what it might have been like for a nation to be taken into exile. I, I mean, imagine... The best and the brightest marched 500 miles from Israel to Babylon, not being able to speak your language anymore, having to adapt to an entirely different culture, not getting to worship your God in the way that you wanted to, not getting to worship in the temple where you had encountered God time and time again. I mean, the heartbreak of exile must have been absolutely unbearable. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine. But maybe even harder for us to imagine is the joy and elation that comes when exiles are returned. And here's why it's so hard to imagine. It just didn't happen. It didn't happen. For exiles to return to their homeland, to get to sing their songs again and eat their food again and uh, speak their language again and worship their God again, this is unique in the story of Israel. It did not happen. And so this song is written after life starts to reawaken, like a tulip pushing through the hard dirt in springtime ready to bloom, or like the frozen ground starting to thaw in Narnia when Aslan takes the throne. Restored. You have to feel it in this psalm. And I think that this psalm is really important for us. Because if you're anything like me, we have a tendency to think, well, what is now will always be. What is now will always be. I'm always going to struggle with this. This is always going to be an issue. We will never grow beyond that. God, I don't know if you can really move and work in this 
type of a situation. And this psalm causes us to raise our eyes above our circumstances to believe again that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think or dream or imagine. This psalm reminds us that exile is never the end of the story. So if you feel like you're in exile, you're not at the end. Let me say that again. If you feel like you're in exile, you are not at the end. And it can be difficult to believe, like, like trying to talk to an addict about getting clean, like trying to talk to an anxious person about having peace in their life, like trying to talk to a broke person about financial, not only viability, but prosperity. This psalm reminds us God is able. He gives grace, he heals wounds, and as we'll see, he restores fortunes. And I love that it starts in the past tense. Because sometimes the pain of the moment can just be too much. And we need to get out of the moment and look back to see what God has done so that we can have faith in what God will do. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's claiming that God's past faithfulness is able to give us an unshakable confidence in his future goodness. That's what he's doing. And so I just want to invite you to look back today. Look back and see the way that God has worked throughout history and throughout your life. And in so doing, I want to call us, Emmanuel Faith, to be a people who refuse to allow our present circumstances to limit our vision for future potential. Refuse to allow your present circumstances to determine what you think God can do. Well, God, here's where I am, so here's what you could possibly do. No, this psalm wants to call us to more. And in so many ways, that's what the prophets were doing. I mean, you read through the prophets, and we'll get there in just a little while in our read through the Bible in a year plan together. And here's what we'll see. The prophets' primary objective was two things. Number one was to call the nation of Israel to repentance. Prophets were calling people out on their sin. But the second thing, prophets were doing where it's calling people to hope calling people to believe that God could move and work it's the reason that the prophet Joel writes and speaking from God he says I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper the destroyer and the cutter my great army which I sent among you I will restore the years that the locusts has eaten, those years that you've spent destitute, those years that you have spent longing, those years that you've spent with desires unmet, God says to the nation of Israel, I'm going to bring it back. I am going to restore. And today, I want to invite you to believe again that Jesus is inviting you and us to be convinced that he's able to restore and he's inviting us to partner with him in that restoration work. I mean, imagine these Hebrew sojourners, pilgrims, going along those dusty roads leading up to Jerusalem, singing this song. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, they had to ask the question that I want you to ask today. God, what do you want to restore in me? What do you want to restore in me? 
And he gives us this answer. He says, I want, I want to restore your fortunes, which we go, okay, well, that must mean like financial prosperity, and it must mean money, or it must mean safety. But I want us to dig a little bit deeper and look at what the psalmist actually says those fortunes are, because this is what I believe God wants to bring back, not just to what he brought back to the nation of Israel, but he wants to bring back to us as well. What's the first thing that he says was restored? Would you just read the word that's above my index finger and in yellow? Dreams. Yeah. That's the first thing that God says, I want to bring this back. I want to restore. We were like people, they say, who, who dreamed. So what kind of people dream? Free people dream? Inspired people dream? Hopeful people dream? Yeah, here's what dreams are. Um, that's the first fortune in dreams. It's, it's being awakened to a new future, to start to believe that what is isn't what always has to be. And did you know that when God put his spirit in you, he also gave you not only the capacity, but the calling to dream? In fact, listen to the way that the prophet Joel talked about the coming of the Spirit. Peter quotes this in his sermon at Pentecost, and this is what he said. In the last days there shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, what? Dream dreams. And I love this because when the spirit of God is in somebody, it doesn't matter how old they are, they are never done dreaming. They are never done awakening to a new future. They are never done believing, God, this isn't the end of the story. You are up to something even now. A dream declares what is isn't all there is and what is now doesn't always have to be. And I was sitting with this and just thinking about this word dreams. And I was reminded that some dreams change the course of history, don't they? I, I got caught on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his dream. This speech given on August 28th, 1963, quarter of a million people gathered at the Washington or the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's a number of different speakers, but the last of the day was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he started to give his prepared speech, and it was falling a little bit flat, which as a preacher, I go, amen. <laughs> Sometimes it happens, right? Even to Martin Luther King Jr. And about halfway through the speech, a woman named Mahalia Jackson yells, Martin, tell him about the dream. Like, Martin, the heck with what you prepared. Speak from the heart. Speak about the dream. Did you know that the second half of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech was off the cuff, unprepared, and spontaneous preaching from the heart? Here's what I envision for the future of our nation. He went on to say, I have a dream that my four little children will one day grow up in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Some dreams change the world. Some dreams are still changing the world. 
But here's the thing, here's the thing. Your dream might change the world, but it could certainly change your family. It could change your neighborhood. It could change your workplace. Your dream could change our church. A longing to say, God, would you do something more than we see you doing right now? But here's the thing, you guys, and we all know this, we all know this, we all know this. Dreaming is hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard because it demands that we admit that what is isn't all that we hoped for. It's hard. Dreaming is hard because it opens us up to be hurt again. Because let's be honest, it's easier to grow cold and try to be content than it is to dream. It's safer for sure. And you know what else is hard about dreaming? It demands that we step in. It demands that we work. It demands that we partner with Jesus to see something different happen in our midst. And so here's what I just want to call you. Would you just look up at me for just a moment, friends? I want to call you as one of your pastors to be somebody who dreams, who dreams again about what God might do in your family, about what God might do in your friendships, in your relationships, in your marriage if you're married, in your workplace, if you've shut that valve down, I'm calling you to open it back up and the spirit of God wants to help you in that because that's one of the things he does. But here's a second fortune, quote unquote, that God restores in Israel. He says, and then our mouth was filled with what? Laughter was filled with laughter. You know, I started to think about this. Exiles probably didn't laugh a whole lot. I mean, it wasn't the type of thing that just brought a lot of humor to your life. And then I started to think about laughter too. And laughter, you can only laugh in the present and you have to be present to laugh. Like you can't, you can laugh about something that happened in the past, but you have to do it in the moment. And it demands that you're present in the moment. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been a part of like a family gathering where there's somebody in one room and they tell a story and the room just erupts with laughter? And then somebody from the other room comes in and is like, what was so funny? <laughs> and everyone's like, oh gosh, you know, that guy again, right? Who invited him, right? Um, and most people respond, you had to, you had to be there. Sorry, the moment is is gone. And I think that's what laughter is all about. And, and laughter is being freed to enjoy the present. And God wants to restore that to you if it's gone. God wants to bring that back. Did you know that they did a study a number of years ago where they found that children laugh between three and 400 times a day? Any young parents want to give a hearty amen to that? For those young parents, most of those laughs are at some sort of meal table, aren't they? When you're like, will you just stop laughing? And then they're like, <laughs> right? Like kids need a reason not to laugh. Adults need a reason to laugh. In that same study, they found that not only do kids laugh three to 400 times every single day, any guesses how many times adults laugh a day? 15 to 20. So here's a question. What happens to us as we mature, quote unquote? 
And then we add in the layer of like religion and spirituality on top of that. And sometimes people equate spiritual maturity with stoicism. And I just want to tell you, nothing can be further from the truth. This psalm is teaching us that God actually loves it when his children laugh. Kelly and I were driving back from Colorado where we had some time with our family and vacation and it was wonderful. And there was this time where a few of our kids were laughing in the back seat of our van. And it was that like, it was my daughter laughing. Her laugh is the best. And, um, and she was just like belly laughing. And I leaned over to Kelly and I said, that is like one of the best sounds in the entire world. And then I came to this text. And I thought, man, what if when we belly laugh, God leans over to the angels and goes, that's like one of the best sounds in the entire world. I mean, so many times we think of God as this cosmic killjoy who's just out to keep joy down. Like, let's not let it get out of control. I don't know about you, but I have never spent a good few minutes laughing and thought that's a foretaste of heaven. But it is, it is. Like when the prodigal returns and there's a party that's thrown, God as a father looks on and goes, I love that. I'm all about that. Your heavenly father loves when you enjoy life. When you laugh, you are singing one of eternity's anthems. And if that's gone in your life, I just want to declare over you today that God wants to bring that back. He wants to restore that quote unquote fortune. And then the passage continues. It says, and our tongue was filled with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, I love this, because God's restoration in the hearts of the Israelite people starts to be known. Because joy is hard to keep down. Laughter is hard to keep quiet. Dreams are hard to keep hidden. And here's what they say. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Oh, I love this picture of what's what's happening for Israel. Their influence is being restored. Their influence is coming back. They're now powerful to make an impact. My guess is it would have been a long time since somebody had said something positive about Israel. I mean, you don't get taken into exile if you have the largest GDP or the strongest military. No, you get taken into exile when you are defeated in every single way, politically, socially, economically, militarily, relationally. After all of that, you get taken into exile. But when God starts to restore his nation, people take notice. See, here's the deal, friends. I think a lot of us think that in order to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus with somebody, we need to know all the answers and we need to have down our response to every single question that they are going to ask. And what, yeah, yeah, good luck with that, by the way, okay? And what Psalm 126 is showing us is that one of the best evangelistic methods ever created that's still effective today is a life that's transformed by the grace of God and infused with his joy. 
people take notice. You don't have to have all the answers. You can just simply say, I was blind and now I see. My God has done a great thing in my life. And that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied would happen for the nation of Israel. He says, and this is God, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? To bring back the preserved of Israel? Is that too much for me? Even though it's never happened before? God goes, it's not too much for me. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I think this is an invitation for you, for me, to be bold in telling our story. This is what God has done for me. This is the joy that I've experienced in him. Now, there are some of us, we read through the first three verses of this and we go, oh, that's my story, praise God. And then there are some, there are some, and you're here this morning and you're in the midst of pain and you're going, I can't sing that with honesty. I can look back and see it, but it isn't my current reality. I'm still living in that exile. And Ryan, if that's the case, what do we do with that? And here's the beautiful thing about this psalm. The first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 3, are written about what happened in the past. But verse 4 brings us right into the present, where we need to experience the very things that God has done in the past. And so verses 4 through 6 really teach us how do we live with the tension of hope, calling on God for restoration, but also being honest about our current situation. And here's what he says. Here's his first prayer. Restore our fortunes. It's present tense. I, I would encourage you to circle that. Make a star by the side of it. He's essentially saying, do it again. God, what you did for them, would you do for us? That's his point. What God did, God can do. What God did, God can do. In fact, would you say that out loud with me? What God did, God can do. See, what is doesn't always have to be. God's faithfulness throughout history informs our hope for the future. History is the context of hope, friends. And it's not like a pie-in-the-sky hope, I hope I win the lottery, I hope things go well for me. No, it's a conviction about a good future based on God's past faithfulness. I mean, we just get to look at God's track record and see the way that he's come through. That God brought the exiles back. We've already celebrated that. <laughs> the Virgin Mary gave birth to the Messiah. And she, after that, says, nothing is impossible for God. You think? Right after that, yes, we would accept her testimony, Mary, absolutely. Broken people are called to be disciples. We have hope. Marriages are restored. We have hope. Sinful people are completely forgiven and restored and redeemed. We have hope because what God did, God can question is, what context and what's the soil in which God does 
this work? It's often struggle. It's often exile. It's often pain. It's pre-restoration. And the psalmist actually goes on and he addresses that. Good the way that he put it. He said, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Streams in the Negev. The Negev was a desert region in the southern part of Israel. I love the way that Eugene Peterson wrote about this place. He said this. The water courses of the Negev are a network of ditches cut into the soil by wind and rain and erosion. For most of the year, they are baked under dry sun. But a sudden rain makes the desert ablaze with blossoms. Our lives are like that. Drought stricken. And then suddenly, the long years of barren waiting are interrupted by God's invasion of grace. Yes, invasion of grace. What's he saying? Oh, these dry riverbeds, they're not going to be dry for long. I know it looks like a desert now, but God is going to turn this into a river. And here's the psalmist point to those who are not yet on the other side of exile, who are walking through pain. Here's what he's saying. We can believe in God's restoration because pain is temporary. Pain is temporary. These aren't going to be dry riverbeds forever. As the psalmist writes, you've turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Pain is temporary. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't last a long time. The nation of Israel was in exile for 70 years. But just because it doesn't happen quickly doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And please hear me on this, Emmanuel Faith. Just because it doesn't happen this side of eternity doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Let me say that again. Just because it doesn't happen this side of eternity doesn't mean it's not going to happen. The psalmist wants us to hear the dry riverbeds of our soul can be turned into lush gardens the word from God. And then he goes on and he says, and those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The psalmist is using an agrarian metaphor, like a farmer planting a seed and then eventually sometime later reaping a harvest. Only he claims that your tears are the seeds. Which begs the question, what, what's a seed What is a seed? A seed's an embryonic plant enclosed in a protective covering that has everything it needs to become a full plant and bear fruit. It just needs the right conditions and time. So think of it. Think of it. This poem is making the claim that the hardest, most painful moments in your life and in my life, and I've got some, how about you? Those tears that we shed over those moments carry a sort of kinetic energy to them that can be an expulsive power for good in our life. The seeds of pain eventually give birth to the fruit of life. That's what the psalmist is saying. 
that some of those most painful things that you've gone through will actually bear some of the most beautiful fruit that you've ever tasted. So I think that's a word for somebody. You're in the middle of this right now. You are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And I just want you to hear God is not done with you. In fact, even in the pain, there's purpose. Even in the pain, there is purpose. You might go, oh, Ryan, what, how could that possibly be? Let me just give you a few things that the scriptures talk about that pain does in our life. It increases our dependency on God, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It has the potential to increase our intimacy with our Father, according to Romans chapter 8. It pries our hands off of the temporal and lifts our eyes to the eternal, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It positions us to be a blessing to others and a comfort to others who walk through pain themselves, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I mean, how many of you have seen God do this in your life? Will you just raise your hand? Yet you've seen God turn pain in his creativity and beauty and power, turn pain into good the glory of his name and your joy as you walk with him. I love the way that Amy Carmichael, the prolific missionary to China, said, God never wastes his children's pain. I mean, and think of it, like, as we lay this over Jesus, did Jesus's pain have a purpose? Come on, church. Did his pain? Yeah, absolutely. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. For the joy that was set before him, there was a purpose, and the joy that he saw before him was us forgiven, restored, redeemed, worshiping, gathering around his throne, united back to him as his children, adopted, clean, forgiven as his own. That was the joy that was before him, so he Walk through that pain. His pain had a purpose. And I just want to say, yours does too. Finally, the psalmist concludes by saying, it's too hot in here to preach like that. I'm just going to say that, right? And <laughs> be like, hey guys. <laughs> he who goes out, sorry, weeping, verse six, bearing the seed for sowing. Isn't that a great picture? He's weeping but bearing seed. Shall, not might, not mm, if everything goes right, not could, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I love that. I don't know when it's going to happen, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but I only know that exile isn't the end of the story. And if you're in exile, you are not at the end. And I don't know, like I said, if it's going to be this side of eternity or the other, but it is going to happen. Pain is ultimately eclipsed by promise. That's what the psalmist is saying. And it's interesting to me that the psalmist uses this imagery of a sheave. A sheave is a, a bundle of like cereal plants. So think wheat or rye. And what's interesting is that every single year, the Jewish people would go to a feast that they called the Feast of First Fruits. And they would take a sheave. 
and they would wave it up to God. And here was what first fruits was celebrating. It's like, like the name suggests, they would take the very first of the crop of the season and wave it before God and saying, God, you were faithful again. You brought us one. We're convinced you're going to bring us more. That's what first fruits was. And they would wave a sheave or a piece of grain before God to say, thank you. And we are convinced there's more coming just like this. Did you know? Okay, this is so exciting. Did you know that when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose on the feast of any guesses? First fruits. First fruits. So when Jesus is walking out of the grave, there are people probably outside of Jerusalem waving a sheave before God saying, there's more to come just like this. And Jesus walks out of the grave and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Meaning he's the first and there are many like him to follow you and I specifically. See, this is a beautiful picture that the pain that was planted in the ground was born again to ultimate and eternal restoration. See, we can all long for and pray for and hope for restoration in this life, and I want to call you to do that. Do that. Live into that. Pray into that. Have faith into that. But ultimately, ultimate restoration is found in resurrection. Ultimate restoration is found in resurrection. And that is the ultimate picture of not letting our present reality dictate our vision for future potential. Friends, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend what God has in store for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, one day, when the Lord returns and when he calls your name and the names of those who have faith in him, the dead will rise, dead bones will come to life. And I love the way that J.R.R. Tolkien said it when he said that everything sad will become untrue. And you know what's also beautiful? I, I, I think this is true, that in some way, somehow, we will be greater for having once been broken and lost. That God's restoration of us in that moment will be the culmination of everything we've hoped for and everything we've dreamed for and everything we've prayed for. Friends, I want you to hear as clear as I can say it today. What God did, God will do for you. It shall happen. It shall happen. And we live today in this what can feel like at times a nebulous in between. Restoration of Israel and coming resurrection. But I wanna call on you to be a person who calls on God to restore, to restore dreams, to restore laughter, to restore influence, to restore life, and who realizes that the context of that restoration happens in the place of pain. But your pain isn't final, it's temporary, and it has a purpose, and one day it will be eclipsed by the God who says, I love you, and I'm for you.
So let me invite you just to quiet your heart. I want to ask you, what, what's one thing that you sense Jesus saying to you this morning? And then I really want you to answer this question. What, what are you asking God to restore? Would you be so bold as to write it down? What are you asking God to restore? And if you wanna be really bold, ask somebody on the, their way out, what are you asking God to restore? And then share what you're asking them to restore in you. So Father, we thank you for being a good father. I don't know, it just stands out to me, Lord, that you love to hear and see your children laugh. <laughs> Thank you. That you give us dreams. Thank you. That you want to bring us back. Thank you. Lord, for the people in this place today who are hurting, who are broken, who are in the second half of this psalm singing, restore us again, O Lord. I just come alongside them and lift them before your throne and on their behalf ask, would you do a great work for them, please? For the glory of your name and their joy as they walk with you. Lord, for the people that are in this place and they're not yet followers of Jesus, they're not your disciples yet, I pray that today that you would remind them that you wanna restore them, bring them back to relationship with you that they were always designed for. That you long to heal, that you long to save, that you long to redeem, that it's not too hard of a thing for you, your arms aren't too short, that you're wooing them and calling them in today. It's the reason they're here. Would you impress that on their heart in a way that would cause them to respond by giving you their life? And Lord, for those that are in the place of joy and dreams and laughter, we rejoice with them. We love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.